You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew, Andrew and I are joined today by Congressman Thomas Cole, Republican from Oklahoma, a nine-term member of Congress. Welcome, Congressman. Hi, great to be with you. Congressman Cole is a member of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. He's a longstanding leader in health security matters. He's the former chair and now ranking Republican on the Appropriations Subcommittee on Labor, HHS, Health and Human Services, Education-Related Agency, very powerful body setting policy in health security. He's a ranking member of the Rules Committee and Deputy Whip of the Republican Conference. We're going to talk about a number of issues here today. We had a chance to do a longer conversation by live video webcast last week. Thank you so much. I want to start with the current situation. Congressman, the president, President Trump, is now in day six of his bout with COVID-19. He's returned to the White House. His true conditions remain somewhat unknown. And amid much controversy involving health professionals, ethicists, scientists, doctors, he's urged Americans to not be afraid of COVID-19 or let it dominate their lives. The First Lady and somewhere around 15 or 16 other people have become infected while at the White House, many at the Rose Garden ceremony celebrating the nomination of Judge Barrett to the Supreme Court. Uncertainty hangs over this entire situation and the campaign, the presidential campaign, and the health of others who may have been exposed. And we're obviously, we're today we're only four weeks out from the November 3rd elections. This is a really extraordinary set of turns in a very short space of time. Tell us, Congressman, how do you make sense of this? And how might this develop, set of developments change America's views of the COVID-19 pandemic? of public health science and the threat the virus poses? Well, of course, it's uh, highly speculative on all those questions. But, you know, my my immediate impression is, number one, it's going to bring home the seriousness of this particular virus to every single American. If a a place as uh, uh, protected as the White House can have an outbreak of this magnitude, then that's going to be concerning to the average person. Well, I've been to the White House during the course of this. Everybody that is anywhere near the president is tested before you, you get in his presence. And that presumably means when you're in a group the size of we had at the ceremony uh, uh, announcing the nomination for Amy Conan Barrett for the Supreme Court, that all those people have been tested. And yet we still have you know, a couple of senators. We still have key staff members. Obviously, most importantly, the president, and the first lady that uh, contracted the virus. So, again, that's that has to be sobering. It also suggests, honestly, uh, depending on how the president develops, uh, we are in much better shape in dealing with this than we were six months ago. No question. You can look at the survival rates between uh, new therapeutics and and a deeper understanding of the virus. And, and they're considerably better even for the at-risk categories of people, particularly older Americans with underlying health conditions. And the president certainly fits into one of those categories at the minimum. So, you know, that's the good news front. And uh, I suspect, you know, most of these folks will get through it. But it's still, gonna, it's still concerning that this could happen. In terms of the political impact, 
hard to say so far. You know, I think the majority opinion and most of the polls I've seen critical of the president's handling of this. But everybody's pretty adamant, too, that it's not going to make any difference in how they were going to vote anyway. So, uh, you know, those folks that weren't supportive of the president, I think, find themselves pretty put off and upset by this. And I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with that, but that's there. Whereas I think his base supporters are are still winning. And so, again, you know, we're looking at a mixed picture here, but uh, there's nothing else like it in uh, modern American history or any point in American history that I've ever seen that we're conducting a campaign at the presidential level with this kind of unfolding and ongoing uh, crisis. And it's uh, caught up the first family and, and some of the more important figures in the administration. And, you know, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot of that discussed tomorrow night at the vice presidential debate and then probably uh, in the subsequent debates as well. Yes. Well, later this afternoon, there was an announcement that the Joint Chiefs of Staff are under quarantine because of an infection, too. Are you worried that this uncertainty and and this set of developments and the confusion surrounding it is going to put America at risk in terms of U.S. security? I'm really not. I mean, um, again, I I regret that the Joint Chiefs are having to self-quarantine. But actually, I said on the Defense Appropriations Subcommittee, I would say the military's probably been ahead of everybody else, not surprisingly, in enforcing restrictions and uh, everything from training to how units react. And so, uh, you know, I think any adversary that tried to take advantage of this situation would regret it pretty quickly. I don't I don't think there's any decline in the in the readiness of the American military. But again, you know, these things do create a, uh, some uncertainty that, uh, where a miscalculation is possible, and uh, uh, that's that's a worry to me. Not not the state of the military, but an adversary that thinks they might be incapacitated when they're not, and, and does something that they otherwise might not do. That that could be a real danger. Thank you. I'm going to ask my my great friend and colleague in this enterprise, Andrew Schwartz, to jump right in. Thanks so much, Steve and Congressman. It's great to have you with us. I have to ask you, you know, the president last night when he returned to the White House, he took off his mask as he entered back into the White House. He's been tweeting and he's been saying that, you know, Americans could should continue on with their lives uh, amid COVID. Is he sending the right message to the American people in your view? Well, I don't have any quarrel with the message. I'm not sure I would send it in quite the way he did. Look, we do need to carry on with our lives. Uh, Nobody wants to shut down the economy, and we can't all be hermits. And we know if we take the appropriate precautions that we can go on with our lives. Plenty of other countries are doing it. Europeans are back to school. Uh, Countries in the Far East, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, well ahead of us, Australia, New Zealand as well probably advantage to be an island or a peninsula nation, I guess, is one of the things that's uh, evident there. But no, I mean, again, we need to do these things responsibly. Uh, and that means you're going to have to have a mass protocol. You're going to have to keep the social distancing. And we're all going to, you know, probably wash our hands as many times as our mothers told us to when we were younger, but we never did. Now it's really important those things indeed happen. So, I think that's the appropriate message to be sending out. And, uh, you know, I think that's what they're trying to do, that that uh, we can go forward. But, again, you need to do it 
with all these protocols in place, which have proven to be very effective when they're actually followed. Yeah, you know, Chris Murray of IHME told us uh, in our last podcast that, you know, only six states have 50% above usage of masks. Why Why don't you think the president will institute a, a nationwide mask mandate when we know, and even his director of CDC said, you know, the single best thing that you can do to prevent the spread of COVID is use masks. And even uh, Chris Murray said that we could save 100,000 lives by January if we if we put on masks. What's the hesitancy? It'd be fair to the president. I'm not sure he has the power to do that. The power does reside more with governors and mayors. Presidential powers here are pretty vague and, and undefined, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't set the example and, you know, you use the bully pulpit, which is pretty, uh, uh, you know, pretty important and pretty effective in American life. And, uh, you know, we've got a whole series of presidents over the years that have used those that that uh, bully pulpit to great effect. You know, probably the messages have been mixed here. Now, again, I don't want to be unfair to the president. You know, I think this is a lot of this has been learning as we go. And you'll find the responses of governors vary greatly. And some of the ones that are at the forefront of being the most aggressive in taking this on have made some pretty big mistakes themselves. You know, sending, uh, you know, people already infected with COVID into nursing homes was not a good idea. And frankly, was not in compliance with the CDC uh, guidelines even at that time. And those guidelines have changed. You know, we were told at the beginning of this, my goodness, you don't need a mask. That clearly wasn't the case. Now, they caught up with that and they corrected it. But there's a lot of things that have created confusion out there. Uh, but I think the strength of the response has actually been in the therapeutics, uh, where I think we've really led the world and made a lot of progress in the uh, you know race uh, to get a, a vaccine, which I'm quite convinced you know, we will, and I don't mean in the race against other countries, I just mean the race in the sense it's important to get there as quickly as we can. And I think we're going to, you know, basically see something that is unprecedented in human history, and that is the ability to not only have a vaccine, but deploy it in tens of millions of doses by the end of this year, the beginning of next year, potentially sooner. That's an extraordinary accomplishment. So, Again, there's some things we've done well in this, other things that uh, we haven't done as well as we could have. Uh, but these very basic things of wearing a mask, keeping socially distanced, and uh, making sure that you have the appropriate sanitation measures, particularly where your hands are concerned, uh, we haven't done as well as we should or as well as other, other countries have. Thank you. I wanted to turn a bit to the question around the next COVID-19 emergency spending bill. President announced this afternoon that He's going to, from, from the administration side, suspend negotiations until after the elections. Things have been stalled out for a while. There, it did look as though Secretary Mnuchin and, and Speaker Pelosi were narrowing the gap a little bit lately, but they were, they were separated by about $2.2 2 versus $1.6 trillion. A lot of debate around state and local governments. Previous to that, Congress had passed four and a half measures on a bipartisan basis, totaling over $4 billion in assistance. A pretty good demonstration of bipartisan resolve and cooperation across Congress and the administration. But things have been stuck for a while, and it's likely to be pretty consequential to Americans, to health providers, to the unemployed, small and large businesses, state and local governments, acutely vulnerable populations, and others. 
what happened, do you think? Why was it, why has it been so difficult when there was relative success earlier on those four and a half other measures, but this one that we've gotten stuck? And what do you think the consequences are going to be? I think they're very severe consequences. Look, there's no question, regardless of who the next president of the United States is, they would have been better off and the country would have been better off had we gotten fifth bill. There's universal agreement that there needs to be more stimulus. You might debate in what form, you might debate uh, how much, but there's not much disagreement. There are some that think we've spent enough. Uh, look, I spent a lot of time talking to a lot of economists from across the political spectrum. I've visited quite extensively with the Federal Reserve. Uh, people, I think Jay Powell has made it crystal clear that he thinks it's necessary. I've talked to our local Federal Reserve Bank in, based in Kansas City, or our regional one, I have enormous respect uh, for the leadership there and the economists. Talk to economists at the university. I've got University of Oklahoma in my district and others and, and business people. They all think we need something. So the inability to get there, I think, is quite an indictment on Congress, which had performed spectacularly well for about a 10, 12-week period. And I think you see the decelerating uh, economic numbers. They're not bad. But they're not as good as they were. They're certainly not as good as they could be. And there's a lot of people that are suffering. Look, had we simply forget the amount for a minute, and we had a disagreement between two hundred and six hundred dollars a week for uh, of extra money and unemployment compensation uh, at the end of July, and the Republicans then moved to four hundred, which is a pretty logical split the difference. And I can tell you from my own district, you have to remember six hundred dollars a week is one thing. In New York City, it's something else again, and we woke Oklahoma. It really was discouraging a lot of people from coming back to work because they literally were making more money out of work. So uh, all those things aside, we could add $400 from the 1st of August on. So you know, in this two-month period, every unemployed person that was put out of work by COVID-19 uh, you know, has lost a minimum of $3,200. How is that helpful to anybody? And that, you know, that's lost purchasing power in the broader economy. It's not just for those individuals. Uh, we've saved a lot of small businesses, but most of them tell me they're going to need some extra help and they're certainly going to need extra flexibility. And they would like the timeline with the money they've already received extended beyond the first year. I find these all reasonable requests. So my personal belief is why we got here and is my personal, and uh, I'll be the first to acknowledge it as a partisan perspective. Look, I think the Speaker just uh, overplayed her hand. I think she thought uh, the Republicans in the Senate would crack because their majority is in jeopardy. I think she thought the administration would crack because it, uh, you know, is in a tough re-election battle, may not win, and she was just wrong. So that's one. Number two, I think the Speaker wanted to pass it largely with Democratic votes, and so forget the money, there's a lot of policy objectives in there that no Republican would ever vote for that have nothing to do with coronavirus. So, you know, again, I don't, and I don't know if personality, it's no secret that the speaker and the president don't get along personally. And uh, I regret that, you know, there were the days of Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, where they certainly fought like cats and dogs on multiple issues, but there was an underlying sense that they really liked one another and respected one another. We don't have that here. That reflects poorly on both sides because I'm, I'm sorry, you need to be a little bit more professional than that. So for whatever reason, I regard it as a great tragedy that uh, a fifth bill wasn't done. 
if only to convince the American people that in a time of crisis, the American government can act together. And frankly, that's a pretty important point to make to our foreign competitors, rivals, and adversaries as well. I mean, if I were looking at this from Moscow or Beijing, I, I would think, huh, uh, this says this tells me, you know, some weaknesses in uh, the in American society. And those weaknesses, by the way, aren't likely to go again. Not getting a bill now, let's say the Democrats are successful in the election, they're not likely to get one then in uh, November or December. And it'll get kicked into the next year. And it'll be a very partisan bill if, the Dem- if there's a Democratic sweep, which means Republicans aren't going to vote for it. Better now to come to a deal when there's power and responsibility on both sides of the aisle politically, because it will be a compromise and it will project the message to people beyond our own borders and to our own citizens who are having a crisis of confidence in their, about our own institutions. Hey, we're Americans in the end. We know how to work together. We're really good at this. And historically, we have been. Sad we're not today. Well, that's a, that's a really good point, Congressman. Is there anything that can be done to really facilitate that beyond what's being done now? I mean, Steve and I, of course, remember the days when Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan would hammer it out. And when, you know, our mentors, Sam Nunn and Bill Cohen and Dick Luger and people like that would hammer it out. What's happening now that that it's just impossible over such a crisis here? I mean, even after 9-11, everybody was united. Why is it that now that we can't get this done? There are too few people making the decision, number one. And this has been a problem for some time. I mean, think about it. Uh, you know, we're talking about spending one and a half trillion dollars in a single bill after spending 2.3, that, you know, we appropriate 1.3 to 1.4 trillion a year. And with all due respect, if anybody thinks the appropriate committees in Congress have had much to say about this, they don't. There's six people making this decision. The Speaker, the Minority Leader in the Senate, Senator Schumer, Chief Staff Mark Meadows, obviously the Secretary of Treasury, Mr. Mnuchin, you know, Mitch McConnell, because nothing's going on the floor that the Majority Leader doesn't support going on the floor and the president of the United States because nothing's becoming law without it. Beyond that, I'd say everybody else has an opinion. And if those six could come to an agreement, their votes would be required and they're all lobbying for different things they want in, but they're not in the, they might be able to influence the outcome, but they, they're not decisive in the outcome. That's dangerous. That, that is really bad. I mean, I, I would tell you, this is an unrelated topic, but I see it over and over. Way too much power has been concentrated in the Speaker's office, whether it's Newt Gingrich or Nancy Pelosi. And the trend line between them uh, has, has been in that direction. And I think that actually makes it harder to reach compromise. It seems efficient in the short term. It's really not. I mean, you have to have national buy-in. And a lot of Congress will do give and take, frankly, better than what we're seeing right now. So, again, I, I really regret this. I was... Sorry to hear the president's decision today, but I think they felt like they had been strung along. And to be fair, the president's moved a, a lot in this uh, and in the right direction. And what I can't understand, and this is a Speaker and Schumer decision, in my my view. Look, we agree on about $1.5 trillion. Why can't you put out the one-time payments for uh, every person making less than $75,000, $1,200 for adult, $500 for children? One time, why can't we put out PPP, uh, Paycheck Protection Program, where there's, again, no disagreement? Why can't we do the $105 billion to help reopen the schools, again, where there's no disagreement? There's no disagreement about additional money for 
distribution of vaccine as it becomes available. I could go on and on. You could bring those measures out, you know, either individually or you could bring them out in a bundle. And you say, let's pass the things we agree on. That would be three quarters in this package in terms of dollar amount. And then you know, have the election. If you win, you can do more. If not, we can continue to bargain. But this idea that we have to agree on everything before we pass anything is a recipe for a stalemate. But that's where the speaker's been from the very beginning. That's not a way to get to a deal, particularly when we have a big number we agree on. We have multiple items we agree on. You could get a bipartisan vote. You might lose people on the left and you'd certainly lose people on the right. But actually, that wouldn't bother me. I'd rather see a big bipartisan vote where the two sides had to work together to actually get something done. It'd be a good lesson to the country, good example to the country. That's a really important answer, Congressman. Thank you for that. And I, and I, hope, I hope your colleagues hear this and I hope the American people hear this. That was really an important, important answer. Andrew, I'd just like to add one, uh, one comment and one question. I mean, the fact that we had four and a half measures go through successfully and now we've hit a, hit a bump here, a big bump in this last phase. Part of it, I think, is the crush of pressure on the election that the elections bring about, erosion of trust, and internal divisions across the board. I mean, the White House has been internally divided. Republican ranks in Congress are divided. Democratic ranks in in Congress are divided. So it's made for a very, very difficult and tragic set of divisions that, that have impeded us my sense is that we're now we're now just going to have to start thinking hard about how to how to move forward on the other side of the elections. You recall back in the the Ebola outbreak in 2014, there were off year elections that year and uh, congressional elections, and it wasn't until right after the elections that suddenly it became possible to talk about a, an emergency supplemental that passed in mid mid December of that year. That 5.4 billion. Ebola supplemental. It was hung up really seriously in the intense heat of the of, of the election cycle. The Senate bill. My one point I wanted to make in addition, the Senate bill. Interestingly, it can, contains three billion for international purposes. That is three billion for Gavi, the vaccine alliance, to procure and distribute vaccines to low and lower middle income countries. Very important piece, and that came from the Republican ranks within the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the appropriate and the appropriators. And that is really going to be very elemental, I think, for demonstrating U.S. leadership outside our borders to begin to address a very acute gap that is surfacing right now. Do you agree to that? I totally agree to that. Look, this is part of our own. This is enlightened self-interest at its best. First, it's the right thing to do. We develop capabilities. We have things uh, available to us that many countries simply don't. We have extraordinary you know, biomedical community. We've made extraordinary investments. Uh, we're a rich country. And so we can do things that others can't. And, you know, I've said before, I, I really do believe in the biblical injunction to those who much is given, much is expected. We've been given a lot. And when we've done these things, you know, wh- whether it's the uh, post-World War II uh, Marshall Plan, whether it's PETFAR and the Bush administration, it has paid enormous dividends for us. It's been the right thing to do for people in difficult circumstances, but it's also made us more secure uh, and strengthened our our reputation globally, which we should certainly use. So I'm all for doing that. Again, at the end of the day, you know, we're better off to uh, to be detecting things uh, overseas, dealing with them where they're at, 
as opposed to letting them pick up momentum. One of the great tragedies here is that, uh, you know, China wasn't poor enough or open enough or transparent enough that it needed our help or felt it needed our help. And, uh, you know, I think that this disaster has been compounded by the manner in which it was handled by China. And we're certainly not in the position of telling China what to do or sending people in. We haven't been able to get our CDC teams that we would like into the country to this day. But it, it does underscore everybody's paid an enormous price for this. So you got to be forward thinking, forward deployed medically. Again, I was, uh, I think I mentioned you, Steve, uh, recently visited a Maryland company that has really got some extraordinary technology that we ought to be looking at in terms of mass testing that you could be using routinely, but then really mobilize much more quickly than anything we did. And the uh, distribution of smaller units overseas, where if we spotted something that was unusual, uh, we could act on it really quickly. And this is something we ought to think about giving away, particularly in, in the poorer parts of the world, because again, it'll help them for sure, but uh, it will also protect American lives. It's just a smart investment. Congressman, I want to ask you, Steve brought up vaccines. Once we actually have vaccines, we may run into some trouble with vaccines involving misinformation, involving communities that don't believe in vaccines. What do you think the solution to that is? Is there a bipartisan solution? Is there an independent body that can be brought together, members of Congress, representatives of the Native American, Black, Latinx communities, church, citizen groups, universities, public health, industry, and social media? Don't we need to kickstart a national conversation on this pretty soon? We're talking about a vaccine around the corner and really getting all of us vaccinated quickly. But if we have misinformation and a hesitancy for people to take vaccines, we're going to run into a whole world of trouble. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with that. I have this fantasy that if the vaccine were actually available, let's say the day before the election, we get the president and Vice President Biden to both take it simultaneously in front of the American people. And actually, you know, some sort of symbolism like that after the election, you know, no matter who won. I think would really be important. You know, I think public officials really have to step forward here. I have enormous confidence in uh, uh, NIH and CDC and uh, the folks that are working on this, what's happening at HHS and through BARDA. Uh, you know, we really have an all-hands-on-deck effort. But I do think we ought to think seriously. Again, the most visible leaders of the country on something like this need to step up and work together. You know, we had pretty bitter presidential election. I was just reading uh, the, the Gene Edward Smith bi wonderful biography of FDR. And it's pretty neat to see Wendell Wilkie, you know, meeting after the 1940 election with uh, FDR and being deployed, frankly, being used. And they clearly liked one another after the, the campaign was over. I don't know if we'll ever get to that point with the vice president and the the president, but you know, you have to be willing to submerge things. So that for sure. And then I think the media has an enormous responsibility here. They need to be putting on the air our people that everybody trusts, our scientists, our leaders. Look how much this has disrupted uh, uh, playing baseball and football, uh, both of which are near and dear to my heart. Why not have sports teams, you know, publicly vaccinating themselves and uh, so, I, again, I think there ought to be a, a real, uh, I'm not an expert in public relations, but you can see a lot of symbolic things that could be done. 
I promise you, if the University of Oklahoma football team is all getting vaccinated, people in Oklahoma will pay attention. They'll think, huh, that's important. Maybe that explains why they've lost two games. As the father of a son who plays college football right now, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> yeah. So let's find some things like that. And I think you'll get a lot of churches, a lot of religious. Yes, there are some people that have religious objections, but, you know, I honestly think most people are appreciative of the miracle of modern medicine and uh, intuitively understanding of how much better it's well, I think lifespan in 1900 was 47. And now that I'm 71, I certainly like the modern lifespan a lot better. So I think people get that. But uh, again, let's, uh, particularly after a bitter and divisive election, this actually could be something that we could all unify uh, uh, around if it were done the right way. Along those lines, I just want to add, uh, CSIS has partnered with the London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine uh, with support from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to launch a high-level panel focused on this very issue of America and the many different interests in America. What can they do in this period when trust has declined around vaccines and public science and the like? And we just met yesterday. Uh, we're calling for this type of national conversation. We're calling for those who have the most to gain from vaccines to have greater voice. And we'll be issuing a call to action on October 16th. I'll send that to you because these very ideas we're talking about right now are contained in that. I want to turn to CDC and FDA. We talked a little bit about this while we had the uh, video webcast. We, this has been a very trying period for CDC and FDA. Each has been subject to a great deal of political interference and controversy and attacks uh, and opinions become very divided, particularly along and disturbingly along partisan lines. There was a Kaiser poll that shows that among Republicans, trust in CDC dropped from 90 percent in April to 60 percent in September, 30 percent drop. There was a disturbing drop among Democrats, not quite as extreme, 86 to 74. When you look at key people like Dr. Fauci, Trust dropped from among Republicans 77% to 48%. Democrats dropped 86 to 80. This is really quite disturbing and it raises some questions of what can we do in the future to insulate CDC and FDA from interference and strengthen their autonomy and restore public trust and confidence in them because they both operate on the basis of trust. That's the essential ingredient for them to be able to operate. And we're seeing that fall away pretty dramatically. Well, you know, I there are all kinds of suggestions about, uh, for instance, you know, running these things by boards as opposed to individual directors and what have you. I'm not sure that's a, a good idea, but I guess it's worth talking about. I think a lot of it, look, I don't mind shaking up the bureaucracies at places like the NIH, the FDA, uh, Federal Drug Administration, and and see, I think some of that's done, and I think there's no question there were some missteps at the CDC early. It'll be interesting to look back on that, and, and again, I don't find fault in that. They're dealing with something brand new. We didn't have the genetic code on it until the third week. It took a while to begin to understand it, how serious it was going to be. So, uh, just as you know, I told somebody at one point, I said, "Well, FDR had a pretty bad first six months in World War II as well. I mean, you have these things when you're overtaken by vast events, but, you know, you don't blame them on other people or, you know, if we had a problem at the CDC, it wasn't a political problem. It wasn't because 
people were politically manipulating the data or delaying the response to either make things worse or uh, not have something happen before the election. It was just simply because sometimes we, you can become too bureaucratic. And, and I think some of the things we've learned at FDA, for instance, I think they probably can move faster. Uh, you know, one of the things that Secretary Azar said, I think, on a conference call, I can't remember quite honestly because he's done so many, whether it was to all of Congress or to just Republican members. But he said, you know, we have learned some of the regulatory things we had. Maybe we don't need. Maybe they genuinely have been slowing things up. And and Congress has been concerned about that for a while. You can go back to the Cures Act that was very bipartisan and that both parties worked really well together on. And there were a lot of measures uh, in that to try and speed up the testing regime and to, to get to cures quicker. So again, that discussion is healthy as long as it's not political, because it's about what's the appropriate level and procedures, appropriate level of bureaucratic supervision and appropriate testing to make sure we get something good, but not so slow that it takes us a lot longer than in some cases it does other other countries. So I, again, that kind of dialogue's fine. But to think, uh, and we've had some charges that CDC or NIH is doing something for political reasons. That's just not true. Uh, and I think public officials have a responsibility to push back on that strongly. It's certainly appropriate. I mean, we had some famous instances of Senator Paul and Dr. Fauci jousting a little bit, Senator Herring. Fair enough. As long, but I don't recall Senator Paul ever suggesting his differences with Dr. Fauci had anything to do with politics. He just thought we could come back to school uh, more rapidly and more safely. And he wanted to make those points and, and draw out the expert's testimony and push back a little bit. That kind of debate is fine. But again, to suggest that that uh, somebody would deliberately, you know, uh, withhold things would be helpful to the, the American people or drag their feet, I think that's not helpful. So again, you trust these guys, you don't. I know most of them. I do trust them. I have a very high uh, respect for Dr. Fauci. Doesn't mean he's always right. He'd be the first one to tell you he's not always right. I mean, anybody that ever listens to him knows how nuanced he is. And I don't mean deliberately, he just understands the complexity of what he's dealing with. And he's trying to give you the, the absolute best information that he can give you. But recognizing that the understanding is changing and he, he can't speak in maybe the black and white terms that we would all prefer that he could. I mean, we're learning more about this particular virus on a daily basis. We know a lot more about it now than we did 90 days or 120 days ago. So. Um, we can't blame people for being, again, a little bit nuanced in situations like that because they could be overtaken by events. Thank you. I think we have time to touch on one important issue around the way we do our diplomacy. There's been a lot of discussion on the Hill and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Senators Risch and Cardin and Murphy around an expanded role by the State Department in promoting global health security and helping to invest in capacity, but using U.S. influence and might through the diplomatic channels. There's also discussions, similar discussions, parallel, coming from within the Trump administration. What are your thoughts? Should we be, is the time ripe for bipartisan action to to really create new capacities, new important capacities at the State Department to, in this pandemic era, move us forward? I absolutely believe it is. And again, uh, Congress is 
actually done a reasonably good job on this. Again, you look at a lot of the investments over the last five years, a 39% increase in NIH funding, 34 in strategic stockpile, 24 at CDC, establishment of infectious disease rapid response. Those were all done in a bipartisan way. So Congress has been sensing this for a while. You know, again, there's always some, there's been this controversy about the World Health Organization. I have some concerns there. I think uh, they didn't exactly cover themselves in glory in their initial response in dealing with China, and they maybe were uh, too naive and too trusting of China. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to have robust international cooperation on these things. No country uh, can make itself immune to disease any more than any state can. And these require cooperative efforts, not to mention, while I I don't think there's any question we're the world's biomedical research leader, other countries have great science and scientists and substantial pharmaceutical uh, capabilities and uh, capacities themselves. So just, you know, I remember once somebody describing uh, NATO to me as a force multiplier, and I thought that's a pretty good way to look at it. Uh, You know, we may have more capabilities any single country who may have more capabilities, quite honestly, than all of NATO combined, but their strength is not inconsiderable. It matters, and it's uh, extraordinarily helpful to the United States. So the partnership matters. Same thing, it seems to me, uh, is true in these health initiatives. Look, we are safer if the world is healthier, period. Our own you know, health and our own well-being is more likely to be secured. Uh, you know, it's, it's a disappointment to me the country as advanced as China didn't get that basic fact, and I think you know badly mishandled this at the outset. But that doesn't mean we can quit dealing with China. You know, we've got to sit down and have some pretty direct discussions with one another. They're not going to like some of the things we say. We're not going to like some of the things they say and do. But at the end of the day, no question, we're both safer working together than we are apart. And so. The dialogue has to happen regardless, and the institutions, whether they be the United Nations or the International, the World Health Organization, have to exist and have to be developed and strengthened. Thank you. I'm delighted to hear you say that. We close each one of these podcasts with a question around what gives you the greatest hope in this difficult period? You know, I think largely just look at how much has been done. I mean, I, I look at Project Warp Speed. And it reminds me of how extraordinary the capacities of this country are. And when we mobilize government resources, biomedical research, pharmaceutical industry, logistical know-how. Again, I think we're on the verge of, we may not have managed this as well as we could have, but I think we're arriving to solutions that will save millions of lives at extraordinary speed. So it just tells me that we are an extraordinary country. But we're a pretty extraordinary species. I mean, this is happening in other places in the world, too. And uh, we have lessons to learn from people all over the world that have maybe managed the situation better than we have. Some of the poor countries in Africa have done a better job, it appears, at this point. We'll see managing things than some of the most advanced countries in the world. They're not capable of producing the vaccines, but they've done a better job of getting their population to do the rudimentary things that provide defense for all of us. I think Americans are pretty individualistic and uh, they always think, well, at the end, I can go go to the doctor and there's got to be a pill that can fix this because that's so often our experience. We maybe don't have as much humility in the face of nature as we should. But at the end of the day, 
again, people have done well. And I look at the sheer compassion and decency of people. You look around, you see people, friends helping friends, neighbors helping neighbor, folks making sure that older folks that can't get out or get adequate contact and adequate food. But there's a lot of decency in American society and culture. And uh, I think we've seen some pretty striking examples of that and some striking ingenuity. You know, we don't know how it'll go for sure, but we are playing professional football. We are playing college football. We are adapting, you know, and we're all we're working toward longer term solutions. So, you know, crisis uh, may may show the cracks and the weaknesses in societies, but it almost always brings out the best in human beings. And I think we've seen a lot of that. Thank you. And thank you so much for taking the time today to be with us. And thank you so much for your leadership in Congress and all the contributions you've made to CSIS through the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. Thanks, Congressman.